couple years ago, I was up in um, up in Alaska sailing through there, which I've done a few times because of a past job that I had, but I hadn't been up there in many years. And I'm sitting in front of a glacier and I know it's going to calve. And I know that there's no way I'm going to catch it in the right amount of time. So I didn't have the same setup five years previous when I was up there. So there's no way I could have done what I chose to do that day. I kicked it into 4K. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are doing something that the Frames podcast has never done. Not once, not ever. We're going into new territory. We are talking about gear. We are talking about technology. We're talking about probably the most important thing in a photographer's bag, and that is lenses. And and, and the reason we're talking about lenses is because I found myself looking at new lenses, reading the technical descriptions, marveling at over all the things they promised and not understanding a word of what seemed to be inside a lens. So today, we're not so much talking about this lens versus that lens or or what to buy. We are going to dissect lenses. We're going to take them apart. We're going to try and figure out what's on the inside. And we have probably you know one of the most well-informed and articulate explainers of lenses in the world. Jared Powers, who is a technical representative for Tamron, is, is with us today. Jared, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, sir. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to this. This this is going to be a lot of fun. Jared, you represent a company that makes lenses for the, the main uh, camera manufacturers. Tamron's does an awful lot more than just lenses for cameras. So just here at the beginning, tell me a little bit about Tamron. How big is the company? Tell me what its scope is. Sure. So we were founded in 1950. This is our 71st year. We have five factories on three different continents that go out to 100 plus distributors on six continents. So you can find a Tamron lens everywhere in the world with the exception of Antarctica. And besides the <laughs> DSLR or the mirrorless lenses that, you know, we're here to discuss today, there are other optics that exist out there in the world that, you know, we take as commonplace and we may not think about. So there's a lot of industrial optic stuff that we work with um, with the U.S. government, which I don't know and I can't speak about. Um, uh-huh. If you have a backup camera, Camera in your car, there's a high probability that 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 module, that lens module, came from us, and you will never oh, know it, right? Because you buy a Chevy or you buy a Ford or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, and that's a large brunt of what our business is, is whether small or large scale industrial optics. And you do medical stuff too. Uh, a little bit. We've started to get into that more. And I think if you look at the industry as a whole, you've seen multiple manufacturers push in towards that because, you know, here in America, obviously our our need for medicine has been growing and growing, shall we say. So whether it's um, optics for ocular assessments, right, or whether it's something like scopes. Um, there are multiple companies throughout the industry that focus one thing here, maybe on scopes or somebody focuses on the ocular stuff, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that is so very cool. 
the, the reason we're talking, though, is, is, you know, camera lenses. And just to start here at, at the beginning, I should disclose to everybody, I'm a Nikon shooter, but my favorite lens, my walk-around lens, the one that's on my camera every single day, is the Tamron 10 to 24 uh, millimeter F, uh, what is it, 3.5 wide angle. It is a magnificent lens for the kind of shooting that I want to do. But with that lens or any other, Jared, let's just do a basic anatomy. Let, you know, let, let's start at the front. Let's start at, at the far end. Walk me through what you know a photon is is going to have to pass through before <laughs> it gets to the before it gets to the sensor. Right. So with any lens, regardless of who who makes it, we we're going to have a you know a front facing element that is kind of twofold it's usually the largest element involved it's the one we always worry about getting a scratch on but it's not that big of a deal because if you think about it in context of shooting through a fence you know long distance how we make our fences disappear the same thing happens with that very front element so even though we put tulips on the front or we have them built in such as like a you know 15 to 30 situation where we have these more robust lenses with, with built-in hoods to protect, we have that large element there and some molded plastic around it. And then we're going to start getting into what we would consider groups of lenses. Now, every lens is going to be different. They're not all equal. And they have, as example, I pulled up just because I knew that was your favorite lens. So let's just talk about it right now. For this one specifically, we are looking at 16 elements, so 16 lenses in 11 different groups inside of that lens. And all that tells you is the groups and the quantity of elements, they have to work in tandem to provide you whatever that lens is doing. So that lens is either giving you super wide angle or super low aperture. And that's kind of what helps determine that uh, for us. Now, depending on the type of lens, as we work through, you know, there's three or four different types of elements that could be in there. And then many times there is a, what we'd call in a Tamron world, a VC or vibration compensation. And a Nikon world, you know it as VR. A Canon shooter would know it as, uh, as IS, image stabilization. So there's a module inside of there, which has a, a really awesome little donut shaped circuit board and some magnets and some ball bearings, et cetera, and some things going on that actually stabilize a very, very small element inside of there. You know, we're not trying to move around big pieces of glass because we would need more battery power for that. Um, so then as we work through that and get out the back and we deal with some more specific elements, usually we hit a mount and that mount is in our world, it's going to be a Nikon, a Canon, a Sony. There we still produce one micro four thirds. And unfortunately, I love the Fuji systems, but we do not manufacture a Fuji lens at this time. What's that? You brought up all sorts of questions just, just right there. So does the number of elements, I mean, I'm standing there at the store and I'm looking at, at, a, at a lens and, and one's got, you know, X number of elements and one's got X plus five, you know, number of elements. Does that matter in terms of quality or is that just the, the demands of that focal length and what the lens is supposed to do? So it's more a part and parcel with demand. Now, if you wanted to be a very pedantic shooter and you're looking inside of those elements, you might want to be concerned with what those elements are or are not made of. But when we're talking about something, like as an example, we manufacture an SP lens, which is the best optical formula um, that we manufacture. And we've been doing this for 40 plus years. So that's where a pro shooter would know, hey, I'm not going to mess around with certain lenses. I just know I need the best weather sealing and I need the best um, optical formula that this manufacturer makes. 
weeks. So to put it into perspective, what I say 16 and 10 for your 10 to 24, if we look at our newest 150 to 500, it actually has 25 elements in 16 groups. And that's because we've either got to keep it compact or because we're trying to reach that 500 millimeter, or because of the, as I said earlier, the aperture ranges that we choose to use in that given lens. Well, physically, what is the difference? Let's just talk about a 35 millimeter prime. Physically, what's the difference between a 1.8 and a 1.4? Right. So I, I love this question because the first thing that comes to mind is probably six hundred dollars <laughs> right oh, yeah I mean, yeah absolutely absolutely um it's i've said for many years in the industry that if you are choosing to drop below 2.8 you know you begin paying six eight hundred a thousand dollars per stop of light uh, it doesn't matter who makes it or or especially the more the sp that l series that nicor lens that's really what's going to happen so when we do compare them, though, out of the gate, here's what I expect if I walk into a store and I'm looking at a manufacturer's gear, which I've never played with before. If I see a 1.4 and a 1.8, such as I have in my lineup, I'm going to expect that 1.4 is going to be heavier. It's probably going to be weather sealed. It's probably going to have that maybe that differentiation between SP and just a regular lens. Weather sealing is probably going to be a little different in it because it's got a different weight ratio. It's it's. Is it internal focus? Is it external focus, et cetera? These are just a few of the things that might fall into play along with what are the types of lenses that are inside of there. As an example, with our longer lenses, a lot of times these days we want a fluorite element because fluorite is super, super lightweight, but it's also hard to come by. And so it is very, very pricey. And that could be why you see you know, some of the things that you do see when we, when we go to purchase these lenses and think about our wallets. So, Jared, you're talking to me about all these elements that are in there of, of various shapes and various coatings and stuff. It seems to me that the more glass, the more whatever that light has to pass through, the more difficult it's going to be for that light to retain any kind of sharpness at, at the end. So lenses, however, are becoming more and more sharp with every generation. How do you maintain sharpness when there's so much that the light's got to get through? Right. So, so there are the specific types of elements, whether they're molded glass, whether they're low dispersion, extra low dispersion, fluorite elements. Then there are the coatings, which now in the industry, we're starting to see quite a few more of. But what we're also starting to see, and this is really the catch. If I can tell you a funny story for a minute, I sat at a dinner after a small trade show in Baltimore one time and the, there's a very large repair facility here in the U.S. that we're visiting and doing clean and checks. And at this dinner after the night's over, he looked at myself and someone, two other people from two other manufacturers and got mad at us. And he said, you know, you guys want to get in this sensor war, but you, you don't realize how difficult it is to put out glass to keep up, you know, these size sensors that we have. And the way we've come about that is the ability for the user to make adjustments in camera. Because as we try and mass produce anything, if you think about mass producing a sensor and having it shimmed correctly for any given lens that gets put on it, it can be a little difficult. So when we allow any kind of customizable adjustment inside of a camera or inside of a lens, such as we have a tap-in console, which mounts on the back, and I open a small piece of free software, and I can adjust certain focus issues and things of that nature that if, if I do find it, I, I don't worry about having to call a customer service hotline, right? I just adjust it myself. And those are the three big ways, the, the lenses inside, the coatings, and then self-adjustment. Does the lens really care what kind of sensor is behind it? 
No, not one bit. Well, okay, that's no, it doesn't. But to your question, uh, the consumer should for the lens. The consumer should think for the lens. And one of the ways to think about it is, you remember the first time you ever saw 1080p. And he thought, whoa, that's too sharp. I remember seeing it myself and I thought, I don't need that. I don't even, that doesn't even look realistic. Now I don't think twice about it, right? Because we don't know how sharp something is until we see something sharper, right? So in in terms of does the lens care, one of the ways the lens might care is, as an example, if you have a version one of a tele-extender, I believe I want to say a version one, at least say in the digital world, of a, a Tamron okay. tele-extender, it was good, but it was engineered quite some time ago. So if I have a brand new lens that is can resolve 40 or 50 megapixels, but I'm putting on a teleconverter that might have been you know, resolved to a film resolution, which is much lower, then I'm cheating myself as the shooter, right? I'm not – right quite as intelligent about my gear as I thought I was because it's, let's be honest, it's tech heavy and we don't always have the time or the desire to go learn some of these things. Does a lens get old? Does the glass inside of it, you know, I mean, I I understand it can get old in terms of its technical sophistication, but a 30-year-old lens that's been in the box for 30 years, is it just as good as it was on day one? So to some degree, maybe not. You know, most times we always think about we see an old lens in a shop and we pick it up, and we look through it. And as long as we don't see some kind of white mold, we think, OK, we're going to get this when at the end of the day, it does have some screws in there. And that's why we do have you know third party repair facilities that still enjoy and want to work on these things so they can tighten and tune things up because we don't have the adjustments with those older lenses as we we do now. Because like, when I think about adjustments it's almost the beginning of photography when we had Petsball lenses and you could just adjust a screw right on the side and you made your own adjustments. And then somewhere in the middle, we got into, you know, more compact and, and, uh, not easily accessible by the shooter to make their own adjustments inside of the lens. And now we've gone backwards back to the Petsball days, but we do it digitally inside. But does, does the glass get cloudy? Does, does, does the, the actual quality of the, the, the elements, does that fade over time? Sure. So I could see where some maybe lesser quality lenses might have that attribute. I can't say off the top of my head that I've seen it, but I also have been locked in my house for almost two years now, it feels like. And I, I haven't looked at a lens in a in a you know, film lens, at least in a long, long time. You know, like I said, a lot of us, we pick it up and we look for that white mold. There's always going to be a fog to it. Uh, sometimes we see a fog from just storage, right? We don't know what might uh, be existing in the air in our house when you leave something sitting for 20 years. So, Well, that, that, that actually brings me to, to two questions then. A zoom lens, just by, just by you know, the nature of, of the physical universe, when you alter the length, it has to import or expel air. So how is it that a humid air, dirty air, whatever, doesn't get into a, a zoom lens? Right. And that's an excellent question. It's one we deal with a lot with older, uh, well, older lenses or certain styles of lenses, such as what we call a push-pull or a trombone style. You know, I can think of an uh, older Canon 100 to 400 where shooters would refuse to use it because they just thought it was always bringing something inside of, you know, every time they pulled it back, it was sucking air in. Right. And again, I'm not a lens engineer. I know that there are things in place such as seals. It's not quite as 
sealed as you might want, depending on the design. But that's where we're also beginning to see what has stopped, I guess, what has stopped that from occurring is we have these internal focus. So all the movements stay inside in the barrel. We don't ever have this push-pull setting or always something that jumps out in front and then has to come back in as compared to just moving elements inside. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. You've got a zoom lens. Let's say it's, I'm just making this up now, 20 to 70. Sure. And you have a 50 millimeter prime. Mm-hmm. When the zoom is set at 50 millimeters, what's the difference? Right. So my guess right off the bat, again, is going to be price and weight, but also it's not completely apples to apples. Uh, say you, I manufactured that lens and you bought the SP version of it and my prime, my 50 millimeter prime, if I manufactured that would be an SP as well. I would expect there to be, as long as they were manufactured, created in roughly the same time frame, like within five, three to five years, I would expect the technology to be pretty similar. Past that, I think why you gave the caveat in the beginning was you did is you know, there's still plenty of purists out there in the world, and I love them dearly, who believe that uh, a prime lens has fewer moving parts, so it's easier for the light to transmit through. It's always going to be sharper, et cetera, et cetera. And, we, you know, we know all those aspects. And so I've been in this side of the industry for almost a decade now, and I spent the first half being a prime shooter, being very specific. And um, and these days, I see zoom lenses from multiple manufacturers that just have high quality to them. And I feel as though I can trust them much more than maybe I ever could sometimes in the, in the film world. So you, you would argue on a you know, standard day, a 50 millimeter setting on a zoom and a 50 millimeter prime are indistinguishable. If they were both the high quality optics. Yes. I'm not going to yeah. I'm not going to compare an SP lens to say, you know, uh like an 18 to 400 for example, right? Which is a a great all-around lens, but that's what it's made for. It's made for all around. It's not made for immediate sharpness. Okay. Tell me about glass. I'll tell a little story here. When my son was in Cub Scouts, we went to a Pepsi manufacturing or bottling plant, and they talked about the filtration of the water. You know, why is it that every can of Pepsi all over the planet tastes the same? And and there, there was a lot of thought put into the manufacturing of the water before the syrup and all that was added. I would imagine in the lens industry, the manufacturing of glass it is, you know, half magic and half technology. Tell me how glass for a Tamron lens comes to be. So it would be the same as it is for everyone else. As as I understand it, there's very few at least photographic glass foundries left in the world. I do believe there's a big one in Germany, which is where a lot of Zeiss things come from. And then there's a one left in, in Japan, which is kind of shared around. I don't know if it's still owned by Fuji or if it's Hoya. Who's got that? So we'll get a, a, a blank, which could be square, could be circular, but it 
is coming out of a block that we can already guarantee has X amount of quality to it before it comes to us. Then, um, depending on the lens it's going to go into, we will have it machine polished or hand polished. And, and that's where it gets really amazing. There are some lovely little old Japanese people hanging out that, that this is an art form for them. You know, there's 10 people in the country that can do what they do kind of situation or, um, you know, within the, any given company. And that's because this is how we had always done it. And then it gets – we're polishing down to micron sizes. And then after we've got these things polished down, we then have to pair them with different shaped lenses to get the optical formulas that we're specifically looking for. You talk optical formulas. Tell me what the difference is, again, physically, between a 35 millimeter prime and a 35 millimeter macro lens. I mean, I know what they do, but but physically, what's different in the lens? Right. So it's the it's the ability for the optics to give you the one-to-one representation. That's where it is. All lenses by nature are going to give you, you know, roughly a lot of times 25% magnification. Even though if you go to my website, you're never going to see, oh, 25% magnification. There is a magnification ratio, and you can read into that if you want to, just like a one-to-one ratio. Uh, As an example, if I look at your 10 to 24 right now, its uh, maximum magnification ratio is 1 to 5.3. So that's what it's doing. It's the ability for a lens to not only let light through clearly, but enlarge slightly. Because why? Well, because that's what true macro would be, whatever the dime is the same size on the sensor as it is in real life. And so – Oh, very cool. Okay. Right. That, so that's that's all we're doing. As an as example, we have three primes out right now for, for Sony gear that is their half macro. And one of the benefits of that is is, well, what if you don't know a lot about macro and you just want to get started? Well, you can buy a $200 prime lens and see if you like this, or you can try and use it creatively and know that it's already a little sharper in the center because it's half macro. And so if I want to do something portrait wise, or if I want to shoot the flowers outside, I'm already going to get something slightly different than what that normal prime lens would do that didn't have any kind of macro feature as compared to jumping immediately into a a one-to-one macro situation where those lenses, regardless of who makes them, are going to be two to three times the price initially just to get started. Yeah, You know, talk about price. A lot of us really do fret over lenses and, you know, do lots of research. When I read something like, you know, my, my lens has a high-low torque modulated drive. <laughs> I, you know, I'm glad it does. Uh, should I care? <laughs> well, I believe that you should, but only in some very specific circumstances that might shoot, or, sorry, that might suit you for what you shoot. These days, what we're seeing is videographers with the advent of, you know, throwing 1080 and 4K into digital cameras, we're now seeing videographers that are, they think they want this lens, it's great, and then they realize that the motor drive in it is just causing them to hear all kinds of useless sound in their video recordings, and they, yeah, they don't like that. The other reason I would state, and this goes to my background in photojournalism a little bit, is there are places where I don't want to be heard, I don't want to be seen, and I don't have to be a photojournalist to have that happen. What if I'm a, a nature wildlife birder shooter that's 
you know, in a very specific quiet place. And I, I don't want to scare whatever animal I am shooting, even if it is at a distance, right? Their hearing is going to be better than ours out of the gate, most likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are just two quick, easy times where I think that it might be useful to kind of know what's happening. But I also kind of believe as well that if you're buying a more modern piece of equipment, uh, I think all manufacturers are taking that into consideration that, hey, we've got to keep this quiet. We need it to be fast. Or is it a motor drive that we need to give them so it tacks, it's it's tack sharp focus immediately, right? Our longer lenses, we want them to lock on and keep shooting birds as they're moving in flight, right? Which is a little different than what type of focus a wedding shooter might want while they're photographing um uh, rings or, you know, the, the after wedding before, uh, after ceremony, before reception mm-hmm. photographs of, of people on the beach or, you know, however they do it. That makes me think of, of two questions. Has the ability of the DSLR to do video really changed lens design? Ooh. So compared to other things, maybe not quite as much, at least off the top of my head. Like when I think about that, I think, you know, camera phone caused a lot of those changes per se. Think of it this way. Like, even though I don't do videography, I've said for a long time that guitars and moving images scare me. I'm just a, I'm a still shooter (laughs) and that's, that's what I do. Right. But what if you've got a camera that has 4k resolution and it shoots a motion JPEG? Well, as an example, what I did was a couple years ago, I was up in um, up in Alaska sailing through there, which I've done a few times because of a past job that I had, but I hadn't been up there in many years. And I'm sitting in front of a glacier and I know it's going to calve and I know that there's no way I'm going to catch it in the right amount of time. So I didn't have the same setup five years previous when I was up there. So there's no way I could have done what I chose to do that day. I kicked it into 4K. I recorded a small amount of 4K footage. I watched it calve. I got it. Then in camera now from almost every manufacturer, you can scroll through because it's a motion JPEG. It is one image however many per second, depending on how you've got it set. And so now I'm getting a shot that's maybe, you know, one one thousandth of a second or I can even jack it up to one four thousandth of a second. And I've got what, 30 of those per second. That's pretty amazing to choose from. You can find the right moment as Cartier-Bresson would say, the decisive moment of when is it really calving or as I had it's calving. And then all of a sudden a seagull decides to fly right in front of my camera and I could catch that. Again, you know, thinking of of what video has has done and, and going back to autofocus, how much of autofocus is the camera's responsibility and how much of it is the lens's ability to respond? All right. So uh, and that's this is a little technically tricky. So the camera is responsible for all the battery power of autofocus. So we got to think about that way. Without without the camera's power, the lens isn't going to do it. There is communication that has to occur back and forth. And it has to occur in an extraordinarily fast rate of speed to know where it needs to go or when you've pushed, right? If you have pressed that button and you want that bird, if that manufacturer's camera doesn't hit that bird, well, you're not going to like their camera so much. So it's the ability to lock on whether on sensor, AF, as we see with mirrorless cameras, AF points, which is technically just almost impossible. And we've kind of figured that out a lot in the last five years, or whether it's something as a mirror box where we have a separate dedicated sensor, just AF sensor that has our points in it. Is the the motor itself 
can be in the lens. It can be in the camera. Or not? That's, no. So the lenses, so the motor drives are always in the lens if uh, if the camera has autofocus. And this is where sometimes the motor drives, I'm getting a little confused in my mind. They are always going to be in the lens. When we talk about stabilization, that's where I was getting confused is because that's a motor drive as well to a degree. Some of those are in lens and now we're seeing certain manufacturers put them in body instead. Why is the in-body image stabilization so popular? Is, is it that much better than vibration reduction? It confused me in the beginning, because if you think back to the beginnings of AF and stabilization and stuff like that, nobody ever chose to try and stabilize a a frame of film, right? When we're moving something around inside of a lens to stabilize, it's pretty lightweight, I would think, as compared to trying to move a a whole uh, sensor module. But I don't don't know that for a fact, because I'm not an engineer. I know people who run IBIS are passionate about it, and they're passionate about it, I think, because it gives them more opportunities to use creative lenses. That's where we start to get into all these extra accoutrement that you can put between the lens and the and the camera body to make things match up. Like I can put that Petzval lens on an A7 III or, or a Fuji system or something like that. Where we've come into some issues is do those things communicate correctly back and forth? and if so, I mean, you think about it, a common question I always get asked is whose um, who's adapter is going to allow me to do X, Y, Z on the system? And, you know, that's for you to test, right? You've got to figure out which adapter suits your needs best, depending on what it is you shoot. Very cool. One last question here. Again, I'm looking at my lens and it's got things in there, you know, like you know, one hybrid spherical element. Do I know what a hybrid spherical element is? Not a clue. But when I'm shopping lenses, you know, f- from Tamron or, or anybody else, you know, what what are the hallmarks? What are the what are the things I really ought to look for to know that this is the way to spend my money? So when you go to any manufacturer's uh, website, you can see the elements that are actually in their lenses. Something like molded glass is spherical or hybrid is sphericals. You know, that hybrid is spherical uh, kind of denotes that it's it's most likely something other than glass. And historically, we might not have a positive thought about that, right? A lot of times I have to use the word polycarbonate instead of saying plastic because plastic sounds cheap to the world. But scientifically, we know that when you put a hybrid element between a couple of low dispersion elements or other specific types of glass elements, we can actually accentuate what the glass is doing. So it's not always a negative by any stretch of the imagination. I think the the curiosity, if you are looking at these elements, you want to look for, you know, how many low dispersion, lightweight elements, fluorite elements, things of that nature, if possible, because they're only going to give you a higher quality at a lighter weight. Um, and I guess, and even, you know, the highest, I think, you know, off the top of my head, maybe a, a Canon L-Series 800, it only has two fluorite elements in it, a max, Right. And no small lenses really have those. So some of the elements you might be most concerned about are really only going to be in specific lenses. And a good way if you just if you nobody wants to go and and look on the manufacturer's sites by simply choosing whatever their best optical formula is, is is just safe insurance. You know that you're going to get what you pay for, essentially. Well, I, I got to tell you, this lens the, the one I use every single day, I love. And I have, you know, a half dozen other lenses for different purposes, too. So what are the challenges? What, what's, I mean, without giving away trade secrets here, what's the next 10 years? 
Oh, wow. That's really hard because COVID has changed some things. You know, if anybody who, who had a 10-year roadmap, <laughs> it's uh-huh. not, quite, not quite the same as it used to be, right? And so I feel as though we're kind of coming out of it. But we've been at a crossroads of digital photography for quite some time where we're watching manufacturers go more to mirrorless bodies. Our lenses don't – a DSLR lens – by scientific nature, physically cannot mount without destroying the sensor because of the way they're engineered. And consumers don't always understand that. It's especially when for all these years, it take you're a Nikon shooter, for example, Nikon has allowed all these older mounts to be used on modern digital cameras. And now we're finding that's going to be a little more difficult going to full frame mirrorless situation. So how do we address that? How do we innovate, put out new glass that people want without upsetting the people who are not getting on the train with us yet. And it's hard for every manufacturer. Everyone is going through about it differently and, you know, trying to, trying to make their own way through that. I mean, for us, the last, let me see. I mean, even during COVID I've released a good amount of lenses, but they have all been mirrorless lenses, full frame and a couple uh, APS-C style lenses. And so that's what we're starting to see now is an actual need for, or desire from the consumer for an APS-C mirrorless lens, which was a little unexpected. In a, in a Tamron world, I can mount a full-frame lens on a crop sensor or full-frame and vice versa. So even if I put that crop lens on a full-frame, I can deal with my beautiful black circle. I might have an artistic use for it. Or nowadays with these modern um, full-frame mirrorless cameras, we can dumb down our sensors, right? I don't ever have to see that black around it if I don't want to, or sometimes the camera will just auto handle that for me. So we're seeing that lenses, newer lenses are maybe even becoming a little more versatile. Some things have held true. This 150 to 500 that I finally released, I've been asked about something like that from mirrorless people for a long time. You know, just because um, you're a DSLR bird shooter doesn't mean there isn't a, you know, a mirrorless bird shooter out there, too, that's looking for that same style. I don't think we're going to get too much longer than what we've already had, a 500, 600, you know, occasionally an 800 millimeter lens. I mean, for us, we won't. We, We bring to the market what the market asks us for, essentially, is what we try and do. We don't. We're not always throwing out something that is um, brand new, crazy to sell a camera, you know, such as Nikon or Canon might have to do be, or, or Sony because they've got a camera and they're trying to pair it with a lens. We're just trying to give you a good quality optic that you will find useful in your workflow because we think that's what you've been telling us. And more so than any other company I've worked for, we do listen to the people. I, I take emails all the time about what my VIP members want or what they think we should be doing. And so we always appreciate the feedback, but it's a weird time to kind of predict what's happening. I say it's weird, but I also have a lot of faith and hope about it because I know very clearly that when um, photography first came around, you know, in the 1830s, by the 1840s and 50s, people said, oh, painting's going to disappear. And it didn't, right? And then we got color film and, oh, black and white's going to disappear. Nope. You know, there's still people out there. Sally Mann is still shooting a, a what, a 12 by 24 box mm-hmm. cam? I mean, a, a mm-hmm. bellows camera. So, <laughs> you know, people, there's still people using the 20 by 24 Polaroid camera, things of that nature. So I know we're headed mirrorless. Everybody is, whether we want to be or not, because that's where we're headed. But I, I think some of the more interesting pieces that have lasted throughout time will still always last throughout time. 
Wonderful. Well, sir, you have cleared up an awful lot of my own uh, ignorance about lenses. I hope we have for somebody else, too. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. It's been wonderful. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. This has been fun on my end as well. Yeah. Have a good day. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.